0: I'm Bill Wheeler, I'll be hosting the weekly podcast, backed up now and then by my buddy, Jason Motlog. We've both worked around the world as journalists for a decade, and we know how exhilarating and how hard that path can be. Never more so than today. So we figured the moment was ripe for a podcast that features dynamic storytellers of all kinds. One that brings you unfiltered conversations about how they do their jobs, and why, and the paths they're charting through new terrain. In short, something we'd want to hear. In the coming weeks, we'll be talking with writers, photojournalists, filmmakers, digital one-man bands, you name it. We'll also be catching up with the fixers and lesser-known players who make things happen behind the scenes. So whether you're a journalist or just someone interested in the world and how it's covered, we hope you'll find something here. Above all, we want to keep it real. So if you have guests you'd like us to bring on the show, questions you'd like us to ask, give us a shout online at detourspodcast.com or on social media. Detours is produced by Blackbeard Media with support from our friends at the Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, a nonprofit that supports in depth journalism on vital issues around the world. Today, we're starting off with Scott Anderson, a veteran war correspondent who's done it for as long or as well as anyone out there. He's parlayed a stellar career as a long form magazine writer into biographies and novels, one of which has turned into a film. He's negotiated access with the IRA, interviewed Muammar Gaddafi, had his work banned in Russia. His most recent feature told the story of the collapse of the Middle East over the last 15 years, taking up an entire issue of the New York Times Magazine. He's also the younger brother of John Lee Anderson, making him half of what's probably the best reporting duo in the world. I caught up with Scott at a bar he co-owns in New York City, The Half King. Over the course of several beers, a few bathroom breaks, and a lot of technical glitches on my part, we talked about life, love, and the perils of the road. So here it goes. What, um, you know what I'd love to start is, 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 you know, everyone kind of wonders what makes an Anderson, um, the more I look into your family, the, the more bizarre and you guys are all kind of rogues and iconoclasts. Can you tell me about, uh, you know, what it was like growing up, moving around, being on the go and and Mm -hmm. how that, uh, shaped all of your young exploits? Yeah,
1: well, we grew up, we grew up overseas. Our father was, uh, he was, uh, agricultural advisor for the American government, for USAID. Um. So we grew up uh, right when I was first born in Latin America, but then primarily in East Asia. And kind of from a really early age, I mean, beyond growing up overseas, which I think was hugely uh, kind of informative of the way we've lived our lives, um, our parents were kind of early bohemians, and, and they kind of believed in... I mean, I don't know if they were just like, you know, it was kind of benign neglect, if they were just kind of like absent parents or had been, they couched it up as this sort of philosophy is like, oh, we we want our kids to go out and have adventures and stuff. Um, but that's kind of the way, you know, certainly the way it played out was we had a tremendous kind of freedom to to kind of go off and have adventures and do stuff from a really early
0: age. There's the, uh, I read that piece that you wrote, I guess, from Men's Journal about your relationship with John Lee. Yeah. And him kicking your ass all the time. Yeah, the yeah we load. fucking hated each other as kids, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And then, he, you know, after, after what, did he trek across East Africa at 13? At 13, yeah. And
1: John was always the, he was the more, he, he was the more adventurous of, certainly of, of the two of us boys. Uh, and he was kind of the hellion. I was kind of the good son. He was the bad son. Two, he's two years older. And so, yeah, he he was always getting into kind of crazier stuff than I was. Yeah. Um, I, I was more the quiet one who just kind of went off on his I was more of the loner and kind of went off on his own I, and it definitely didn't get as, in as much trouble as him as it was just kind of like operating under the radar better than him. Um, but yeah, he went off to... He he had gone to live with an, uh, an uncle who li- were working in Liberia when he was 13 and then he he managed to convince him that, that he was going to go off to East Africa and, and my our parents that he was going to go off to East Africa for... Uh, you know, for like two weeks uh, on his own, and it ended up being like about two months, just so he was like 13 knocking around East Africa by himself. Um, and then and that was kind of the beginning of a number of, of kind of crazy adventures that John Lee had. It, it was very odd. I mean, I'm, I'm a parent now, and and, and I, I'm, so now I'm trying to figure out what, what the hell my parents were thinking of this, like sending somebody off the age of so what, yeah, so what happened, John? I, he was 18, he was down in um. He was down in Honduras. He'd been working on a... Uh, he'd been helping a, f- a friend of the family build a house. And he'd sent this postcard up saying that he'd sliced open his foot and that the doctors thought it might be gangrists. They might have to amputate his foot. But it was all in this little... This postcard, you know, it was like five... I don't know, 800 words on this little postcard. So my parents got this postcard and they started freaking out. Saying, oh, you know, he's going to lose his foot. we got to send somebody down there to get him out of the hospital, bring him back up to you know, a decent hospital in the States. Uh, but you know Somehow it never Crossed their mind That hey You're the parents Maybe but you should go You know It's like Oh let's take Send the 16 year old kid Who doesn't speak Spanish you know, Let him sort it out <laughs> so, so that's how it, So they sent me and what also never occurred to him is that with the Honduran postal system he had sent that postcard like a month earlier it had taken a month to get to Florida so by the time I got to Honduras I found my brother is was fine they'd given him penicillin or something um, but and that was that trip was really the beginning of of our for the first time we, we really spent time with each other and really kind of got to like each other so So what it was ended up what was planned to be a two three day trip down there to find him and put him on a plane and bring him back to the states ended up being this he and I wandered around uh, we cashed in uh, our return plane tickets and we had like I don't know altogether we had like four hundred dollars we knocked knocked around Central America for two months together um, and, and hitchhiked to California at the end of it so
0: yeah so there's a rat I mean he's there's there's a great poignant moment, I can't do it justice, but he says something right. like, was it while you guys were down there or was it when you were back in D.C. where he says, essentially, it's not going to work, this fitting in thing. It's not going to fit in. Yeah. We're always going to be in places like this and we'll never belong to anyone yeah. but our family. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. and I, you know, I think that, that it's funny that that's what... Yeah. Um, I think he realized it before I did, kind of. Uh, I, I mean, I think one thing that I, I think both he and I... And it's funny, we, we have three sisters too. And two of our sisters, when we got to the States, immediately put down roots um, and have never, tra- never left. They're both in Hawaii. Um, but then uh, our other sister and, and the two of us were, I and mean, all three of us are writers, but we've all been kind of nomads our, our life. I less, than, I, less than John and Michelle,
0: with that rootlessness how did you how did the writing career start there's a point I think where you mentioned where John Lee's taking a job as a cover reporter and yeah. you had tried putting down roots and kind of gave up on that and he he throws down his tie and says we weren't meant to live like this let's let's go be writers was that always the, the goal because? No. It, I mean for me you know it's funny
1: for me actually uh, it was rather dramatic um, I had finished high school in North Florida and I took a took a just a job until I could figure out what I was going to do. I took a job with the government in Washington. It's a low-level low, low bullshit job, and I was living with a girlfriend. And I'd been doing that for about a year. I was, i had just—I think I had just turned nineteen. And you know, kind of vaguely thinking, oh, you know, at some point I'm, I'm, you know, go to college, whatever. And then this one, uh, but really not at all clear on what I wanted to do. Um, and also very clear from our father that. If we wanted to go to college, we were going to be on our own. We weren't going to get any uh, help for it. Um, but I got this idea to write a book, write a novel. And over the course of, literally over the course of a weekend, and it's just, it's, it, I mean, it sounds like one of those made-up stories, but it was actually very really true. Over the course of this weekend, I, I got thinking about writing this novel. And on Monday, I, I went in and quit my job. Uh, for the government I broke off my I was engaged married to marry the girl I was living with broke off my engagement and like three weeks later I was I, you know I did the Jack Kerouac thing and I went to the road and I was like three weeks later I was picking peaches in northern Michigan and it was being thought it would be cool to be like a migrant you know worker for a while but it, it didn't last very long uh, and then and it, but it was kind of from that moment on my life was kind of set you know and I mean it was just this it was this passage I I went uh, that where before my life was, this, you know, certain, you know, it's like a nineteen-year-old kid who wasn't sure what they wanted to do, and after it, it was absolutely, it was just this is my life, and so everything was kind of predicated on that, and so, and, um, so, and the only thing I can compare it to is is what a, uh, is what a gay person must feels when they when they realize they're gay. It's just like it's like it's not. It's just the new fact in your life. It's not something you chose. It's just, it's, okay, it, it, this is, this is who I am. And and so it was, there was never really a decision uh, involved in it. And there, and, but also there was never kind of going back from it. So it made my life kind of very simple that way. I never thought, oh shit, maybe I should go to college because, you know, okay, the writing thing's not working out. So maybe I should go to college and I can do this and I can write on the side or whatever. It was just, it was absolutely clear what I was going to do. And then I was just going to have to wait tables or, or, or bartend, or work in a casino. I was just going to have to do bullshit jobs until the day came when I, you know I could I was going to be successful as a writer. But it just it made my life very black and white. Um, Meaning, you
0: just you had this burning desire to be a writer, and it wasn't even a
1: desire. It wasn't even a, so. That's why I say I, I kind of compare it to what a gay person mm-hmm. must feel. It's, it doesn't even come down to desire, or choosing, or whatever. It's just like this. What this, and it sounds kind of melodramatic to put in these terms, but it was just like this is your reality. It's, it's and and it doesn't matter how hard it is, and it was hard for a long time. I mean, it, you know, I was a, I started out as a shitty writer, like every writer does, um, but it was just it was just the way my life was going to be. Um, so it, it, it was the only thing that was going to make me happy or fulfilled or whatever. And there there couldn't. So in a way, it was actually. It, I mean, it was easy because there was no never any sec, there. There was no second guessing because there was nothing to guess about there was nothing to go back to you know again it's like I mean you know a gay person doesn't second guess being gay you know it's just like it is your reality kind of Um, so so yeah so it made everything kind of black and white and it was and I mean it didn't make things easy Um, I mean I could have I definitely could have done something that you know from an earlier age uh, you know had a better you know better lifestyle. I mean, I was poor for a long time, but it, but it was just like, well, this is it. This is just, you know, this is just, this is just what I am. So, I I don't know. I think it was probably different for my brother. I think, um, I don't know. It's funny. We've never really had this conversation, but I mean, I think for him, it was this more of a gradual thing. He was living overseas. He started, he was living in, um, Peru and he got his job writing for, for local, uh, English language newspaper there, and um, and so and, and so it, I think he kind of he just kind of slid into into journalism that way. Where for me, I sorry, I'm not sure I wanted to write fiction, um, and kind of ended up later sliding into journalism. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. How about uh, where was your first conflict zone your reported? It was it Beirut.
1: Uh, first conflict reporting on no. Um, my first war zone I went to was Beirut, and I was in uh, the summer of '83. Um, I had this vague idea of I had been traveling around Europe with a girlfriend for about four or five months, and uh, got to Greece, and we ran out of money essentially. I didn't want to go, I didn't want to go back to Washington and, and work in, in a restaurant. And you know, I'd heard this vague thing about stringing. It's like, oh, you know, you go somewhere and be a stringer. I had no fucking idea what stringing meant or, or... So anyway, so I went to an AP office in Athens they said, yeah, you know, I'm interested in being a stringer and the guy looked at me and said, what, in Greece? And he's like, no news in Greece. Nothing ever happened here. He said, but if you're serious about it, go, a, go to Beirut. Um, so this is like August of... This was right... This is shortly after the American Embassy had been blown up.
0: Right, after you were pushed into Beirut, right, in 82? Yeah, yeah.
1: So it was maybe it was July. Anyway, it was, it was that summer of 83 um, so I and my girlfriend went to Beirut, it was just, it was insane. I mean, just like, you're tr- we were, you know, we were in West Beirut, which is being shelled, not not shelled, you know, it wasn't Stalingrad, but shells were coming in every once in a while. Um, and the, the American Marines were there, they were getting shot at, and, but basically just ran out of money Um, uh, before I could kind of put things together, and so we had to leave. And then, you know, like three weeks later, the the Marine barracks got blown up. So then I would have had more work than I knew, knew what to do with. But I, it was just this little period where there wasn't much happening. So that was my first brush with war. But the first first experience in, in writing about war, my brother and I did this book called War Zones, which is an oral history from five different wars taking place around the world. So we spent a year and a half going to different war zones around the world. And how did
0: that project, what was the genesis of that? Whose idea was that? That, you know, it was kind
1: of joint. Um, it was the second book we did together. Um, but w- so we first kind of pitched this idea to an editor at um, Dodd Mead, which is a company, a company now that's bankrupt or disappeared. And it was this idea of make, taking a look at modern wars uh, around, you know, wars taking place now around the world um, and kind of going to... Kind of the ground zero of each of these conflicts, and and looking at how you know what happens to civilians as they're caught in the middle between the army and the guerrillas and everything. But then very quickly we we thought, well, how how do two writers do that together? Um, and so we ended up deciding to do it as an oral history. So there's very little of us, and then and it's so it's voices of combatants on both sides, but mostly like civilians kind of caught in the middle, and usually usually at at kind of a a, yeah, a locus, uh, you know. Some spot where it, you know, like in, in Belfast, like the Falls Road and Shankill Road in, in, in West Belfast and stuff. Um, we were, you know, living together for a year and a half. I mean, virtually every day, you know, going from one war zone to the next. And, and you know, uh, that
0: that made us incredibly close. Um, still, Big Bro. Do you were still looking over your shoulder, wondering about how Big Bro sees you, and especially since you guys have. You know, that, and, yeah, of this industry
1: yeah to, yeah, to a degree and, and I think he, we he still uh, yeah I, I, and there is still the big brother little brother uh dynamic at work I think uh I mean he uh yeah he, I, I think he feels he can kind of like counsel me or like <laughs> anyway I don't I don't feel like I can in reverse you know it's like uh, yeah um yeah so yeah we're I mean that that still kind of definitely definitely exists.
0: There's this great so. quote in that Men's Journal piece that uh, you know you get sending you go down to rescue him from Honduras on your right. dad's orders, and you're sending telexes back and forth, that right. sort of works of art, right. Know, right. Know, <laughs> right? And so John Lee convinces you to go into Mosquito Indian Territory, <laughs> Mosquito Coast, right? And then he frames it. He frames it as this is his telex response. Mom and Pop Scott wants go mosquito. Me think some kind of adolescent self-esteem deals. <laughs> May benefit all in the long run. To back home in eleven days, one month tops. PS, <laughs> foot five Right, <laughs> right. So that's right. still he's still. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, our parents are dead,
1: but he's he's dead. he's certainly the the yeah the, the, the kind of the patriarch of the family. I think. And um, yeah, you know, actually, I mean, probably in the last few years, I'm more I give you know I'll give him some advice um, journalistic. Uh, you know, especially in areas I've been I've been working in more recently than he's been, but he, but he he definitely works Last year for the for the New York Times magazine piece, I, I had to go to Libya, and he was he was definitely like freaked out about me going to Libya. I mean, I I was a little freaked out about me going to Libya too. But but you know he he did everything possible to you know he hooked me up with the, the, the best fixer who worked with him there. And he wanted me to, you know, I had to call him the minute my plane took off out of Libyan airspace to let him know I was out. And, um, yeah, so, I, yeah, I think he, he definitely kind of feels like he needs to kind of watch over me more. Um, and I had an experience in Lebanon where uh, it was actually the, after war zones, it was the first time we'd been in a war zone together. It was in 2006 during the Israeli offensive into southern Lebanon and John was up in in, uh, Beirut and I was down in Tir which is uh, city that the Israelis were attacking and shelling and stuff and that Hezbollah was kind of in control of Tir southernmost town and um, I and Paolo uh, the the photographer I always work with we we had a a drone missile come in next to us and uh, blow up about fifteen feet from us, and we were both kind of rattled from it. And I was worried. Well, I, I my ear was messed up from it, but I was worried that, that Paolo had a had a concussion. But you couldn't move out of tear because the Israelis had put down a, a curfew, and they said anything that moves, we're gonna we're gonna blow up. And um, my brother spent like three four days in Beirut. I mean, talking with the American embassy, the Israeli embassy, the, talking with Tel Aviv, uh, talking with Washington to try to create a window to get us out of Tyr and up to a hospital in Beirut, because we were just kind of stuck in Tyr, as was everyone else. But you know, he kind of moved heaven and earth to try to, to get us out of Tyr. Out of um, so, so yeah, he's, I mean, not only is he, is he very uh, protective that way, but he's also very effective. And, so.
0: so, yeah, let's talk about your, your Times Magazine piece, because... You've been in a, in a very tough game for a very long time. You know, we, we can get into how the risks have changed and, and the game has changed. Um, but, you know, the story that I heard from, I think, Jake Silverstein told it was that the genesis of this idea was you guys having a, a boozy lunch or something and, and kind right. of wanting to interview the strong men. And then that, these guys all fell, Mubarak fell, Gaddafi was on the run, something like that. And you get kind of an, evolved from there.
1: Of we, we, The original idea was We're going to go around and talk to We're going to interview heads of state And so I, I made, I don't know Four or five trips down to D.C. Talking with ambassadors and press attachés And stuff of all these embassies Trying to line up the heads of state The first one was no one wanted to be first you know, it's like, it's like, oh, if it's like fucking kids at a high school dance. You know, it's like, oh, if so-and-so dances, I'll dance. And it's like, I'm not going to dance unless they do. So we can never get one person to say, okay, yeah, I'll do it. Because everyone is contingent on everybody else.
0: Which guys are we talking about right now? Heads of state. It's yeah. Like, yeah. So like,
1: you know, Netanyahu was not going to do it unless, unless Sisi was going to do it in Egypt. And, and Sisi wasn't going to do it unless like, I, you know, the, you know the, the king of Saudi Arabia was going to do it. So, so everybody was contingent on everybody else. Um plus the more I got thinking about it was, you know, we're gonna to have to do this kind of script. So everybody was everybody's we're just gonna get platitudes, you know platitudes from these people. And their their fucking press attaché I was gonna be sitting it would be sitting in the room and it's just it was just gonna be bullshit. So I kind of you know, in thinking about that, I got I thought, you know, I think we've gotta do something more of a reporting thing and so I kind of came up with this idea of doing what I had done with my book, Lawrence in Arabia, which is kind of follow a group of people and, and have them, you know, follow them through this time um, and, and and sort of tell the history of this of this period through their experiences. And then when I came up with that idea, then it, it very quickly made it obvious which countries to focus on because I needed dramatic personal narratives. So... Um, you know Tunisia, which obviously is very important for the whole Arab Spring revolts. It's where they started, but it's not a big dramatic narrative there because they okay they had a little a little riots they overthrew the strongman they now have a shaky parliamentary democracy, not a lot to work with. So it made it very clear I needed you know Libya, Iraq, uh, Syria, Egypt. Um, so it, it had the effect of, of kind of and then I also realized that okay you can't just talk about the Arab Spring revolts in isolation. It's you have to also. You really have to go back to the American invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three. So that's you're kind of dealing with this whole whole time frame. Um, as far as how it's changed, I mean, I'll, I I have always told this kind of story of the difference between the second war I was ever involved, ever went to was Salvador in 84, 85. And Salvador is as nasty and as vicious as that civil war was, as a foreign journalist, as, as any journalist, well, let's say a foreign journalist, you could you could travel back and forth between FMLN held territory and government held. You just put like TV, you'd, you'd take TV on your car, or Prensa, and you would go back and forth across No Man's Land. And then, you know, fast forward seven, eight years later in Bosnia. Um, Journalists were doing that, trying to tra- trying to cross, and, this, and the Serbs were actually targeting cars that would say it's TV. Library yeah. Alley. Yeah. Um, and now you've moved into another whole thing. Well, then you'd moved into this whole thing where, it's, it's by the time I was in Chechnya in 95, 96, um, now you're being seen as, you know, really in Chechnya by both sides, it, you know, you can only bring them problems because they're going to report on the on the, the atrocities you're committing. So you're you're part of the problem. So you're fair game to everybody, and you know really up until Iraq had happened, Chechnya was just a I mean it was just a fucking killing field for journalists. Uh, more journalists were killed in Chechnya than were killed in the Vietnam War. Um, what's happened now with ISIS, and I really felt it on this reporting for this story in, in places like Libya uh, and and. While being on the front lines uh, in northern Iraq with, with ISIS, is that now as a journalist for ISIS, you're walking around pot of gold. Uh, Paolo, he's Italian. Uh, all the journalists that were getting grabbed, all the European journalists that were getting grabbed by ISIS, the, 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 their governments bought them out for about $5 million apiece. So you are worth $5 bucks. As an American, okay, Americans aren't going to ransom you out. You're you're a trophy killer. You're you know, f- for moral <laughs> moral reasons, you're worth at least as much. So, what's a finder's fee on five million dollars? You know, you're 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 trusting your life with fixers. You're paying three hundred fifty dollars a day. Drivers, you're paying two hundred dollars a day. Um, in an area where people are operating, where you're worth five million dollars. I mean, you're worth five million dollars. So. It, you know, what's the finder's fee? Ten percent, five percent, quarter of a million dollars, um, and it's makes it's made things so much creepier, um, and just and just so much more it's so much more difficult to to try to to report on. I mean, this is why you know Syria is the, is a charnel house, and we we kind of know it, but we don't know the, the true hideousness of it because no Western reporter can go there and, and really report on, on what's happening. Um, I was barred I, I was you know it's, it's loosened up a li- well it had loosened up a little bit with the New York Times uh, a few months ago where they would let with a lot of with a whole mess of prep uh, they would let people go into Aleppo on quick trips but when I was doing uh, Fractured Lands I could I, the New York Times would not let me go in on Rebel Helds Rebel Held Syria and the, the, the Syrian government wouldn't let me in on the government side. Um, they tried for months to get a visa; and they wouldn't do it. So that, you know, I mean, that's the the, the the sad thing that's happening all over the world now is that place. It's in, on one hand, it's the economics of media, news media now. That there's got it's got so bankrupt. But then on the other, that places where ISIS or groups like ISIS operate, it's become so dangerous for Western journalists. In some cases, local journalists. That that this stuff is just it's like you know it's like does a tree fall in the forest? Um, you're not going to hear about it. Um, and you know I can totally I can totally foresee that there being you know just a horrific, well you know a, a serious, say in Central Africa or or in Indonesia, and we never know about it or, or we you know we we know very little about it because because you can't go there to report it.
0: Is it a profession that, I mean, would you do it over again today? Is it something you recommend that people embark on? I, I mean, I would totally do it again today, but I, I
1: also feel just, and again, you talking about the economics and, and how things have changed, I feel like I'm just in an age and, and maybe just at a point in my career where I just feel, I feel like I'm kind of running through a house and, and doors keep closing right behind, right on my heels, you know. I, I mean, the fact that I'm able to make a living doing this I think there's very few people who can say that anymore, and I think it's going to be increasingly, increasingly small. I, I you know, again, I look at Paolo, my my photographer, and I feel the photographers are they're kind of the canary in the coal mine, a little bit above print people, but you know, there are probably ten photojournalists in the world now make a living from doing that, and Paolo's one because he's he's one of the best. But you can count on two hands uh, where 20 years ago there were scores, you know, maybe. Hundred and fifty, or you know, making a living doing this. Now they're all having to you know, work with NGOs or institute. You know, they're all having to do outside stuff. Um, and unfortunately, I feel that, that that is increasingly becoming for print journalists who do the kind of stuff that my brother and I do, foreign reporting. It's 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 really hard to see how that. I mean, I, I would of course I would advise anybody going to go into journalism now, but to try to make a living doing what we do really really difficult you know, um, you know everything with all the, the blogosphere stuff and everything I mean the, the one thing I feel a little heartened by is I felt like there was a long period where everything was just getting shorter and shorter and shorter and you know there was a period probably about four years ago where the, you know it was really unusual seeing any magazine a story longer than 6,000 words you know I think Esquire was like know strictly 6,000 new yorker was getting down to seven seven and a half and i think that's kind of changed now i think that that, and i think it's going to change even more now with trump that i think there is this there is this hunger or at least a a, uh an appetite for for longer kind of more nuanced more in-depth stuff um and you kind of see it you, you, you see it online you see it on these online magazines you, you see it well with my piece at the uh, New York Times Magazine but New Yorker now there's they're back to running some stories or are 12,000 words um, so I think it's this kind of backlash to everything being you know microbited and and and, and um, yeah people just wanting more in-depth
0: stuff so you do think that there's still a hunger and appetite for the sort of globally minded stories that you have yes. like your career doing, and you yeah. think it's coming back?
1: I do think it's coming back. I do think what may not be coming back is the economics that, that do that. I mean, you may have to go to foundations, to NGOs. Uh, there may, might have to be partnerships, as there was with mine, with the New York Times and the Pulitzer Center. Uh, there might have to be these kind of partnerships that make that possible. Um, but, but yes, I, I do think that there, there's a, there's a, there is a market, there's a, there's a
0: hunger for it. You know, there's a line in this men's journal piece where you said, uh, you know, whatever it is essentially that's driving us, you know, to these places. Um, and one of the things that you mentioned is it's maybe a, a a sort of ill-conceived concept of the power of journalism. And I'm kind of curious, you know, when you look at, um, let's talk about the, the Russian apartment bombing story. Um. Can you tell us a little bit about about how that uh, fallout from that shaped your belief in the limits or powers of journalism?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I, I think for everybody, who, I mean, look, I think one of the conceits that draw that keeps journalists going. Or, oh, I mean, I'll speak for myself, but I, I think it's a pretty common conceit is this idea that you can actually affect change. That that what you what you're writing about is going to. Especially if you're covering conflicts uh, and things, that that what you're going to do is going to prick the conscience of of people and and hopefully bring about positive change. Um, I mean, along with that is, of course, you know, the other great thing about being a journalist is that it's just an excuse to be nosy. You know, you can just kind of... you know, muzzle your way into anyone's life and ask them personal questions. And you, it's just like, you know, you you have the excuse that you're a journalist and you need to get to the truth or or whatever.
0: Um, With, yeah, with, I mean, with the... We should probably set that up, actually. So uh, the story was looking at the string of apartment bombings in 1999. Right. And the allegation that uh, the FSB, the inheritor to the KGB, had essentially, this is a false flag operation that they did in order to blame Chechnyans and justify intervention again in Chechnya. Right. And, and, the to, rise and of, to bring
1: Putin to power. And to bring Putin, to, bring Putin to power. Um, yes. And so I had I had been in Chechnya uh, in the in the mid-90s um, during the first Chechen war. And then I I, I you know kept watching it sort of uh, as time went on and then seeing Putin come to power and how he very quickly how right after he came to power there was a series of apartment bombings that were blamed on the Chechens and how that became kind of his way to start the next Chechen war and, and to take over from Boris Yeltsin and, and, and to never look back and I remember at the time there were, there were always there, were, uh, there was a lot of uh, I don't know if a lot but you know there, there were a lot of suspicions that, that that in fact that the Chechens hadn't carried out the bombings um, for one thing, the Chechens had no reason to. They had they had de facto independence from, from the Russian Federation under Yeltsin. So why would they, they carry out these bombings at that time? There had also been a botched bombing that had, um, uh, after, I think, it was after, there had been four apartments blown up, and uh, a fifth one, maybe a sixth one, uh, these, uh, these people in the apartment building Saw them in putting the, the, the explosives in the basement. They they uh, raised the alarm, and it turned out the the people who had done the explosives put the explosives there were KGB or FSB. Um, that all kind of got uh, kind of pushed under the rug. Anyway, i i, I had all it had always been in the back of my mind that there was more to that whole story about department bombings. So i i went uh, to Russia um, in oh and um, found this this former FSB investigator uh, Mikhail Tripashkin who had spent who had spent three years in prison for looking into the Department of bombings and was absolutely convinced that in fact it had been an FSB operation in the service of bringing Putin to power so I, I I did the story at at a slight danger to myself, but a huge potential danger to Trapashkin. Um And I did it for GQ magazine. And then um, the, the lawyers at Condé Nast, uh, GQ's parent company, did everything they could to bury the bury the story. Um, I was given a copy of, of this email that went out from the legal from Condé Nast uh, legal office saying. Uh, we're not going to advertise the story in any way. It's not going to appear on the cover. We're not going to. We're not going to allow any of our our affiliates to you know, re-syndicate it. Um, they just tried to do everything possible to bury the story. And and to me, it was just this classic sign. This is the way censorship works. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not the the, the thing of where they really just you know they x out the whole the whole page and, and it's it's just blocked out. It's this. It's this nasty little world where where economics crash up against journalism and so Kanye Nast uh they they didn't want to lose their other publications they didn't want to have the so the Russian state come down on the Kanye Nast publications in Russia so in order to avoid that they're going to do everything possible to kill the story that presented their president as a mass murderer um So, you know, I mean, the the end result, I mean, I remember when I got, I was, I was given a copy of the memo. Obviously, I hadn't been CC'd on (laughs) it, but I, it was given to me and, uh, you know, I, I thought, I remember thinking for, not very long, probably about 15 minutes. It's like, okay, what do I do? They're, they're, you know, I, I spent a lot of time on the story. They're going to run it, but they're doing everything possible to kill it. Do I go up against Condé Nast on this? Um, you know, do I do I raise a stink or just to go quietly? And I thought, yeah, well, you know, I have to I have to raise a stink about it. I mean, I've got a, a guy trusted me with his life, Mikhail uh, Gorbachev. You know, I I I just can't roll over for this. I know, who gives a fuck if, if I'm blacklisted by Condé Nast? Um, so I went to NPR. Um, with it and and uh, it it kind of created a little bit of uh, uh, you know, it was a little mini journalistic scandal for a couple of weeks of and Connie nass had to try to backpedal away from what they had done.
0: Wasn't there an editor who stood up for it basically? And oh yeah, sort of yeah. No, I my editor. I mean the re,
1: I think I think if the lawyers had had their druthers the story would have been killed completely. But my understanding was the editors at GQ they all threatened to, to resign. If it was going to be killed completely, so unfortunately the editors kind of took it on the chin. as it went, you know when the when the the whole media kind of broke about this thing. But but you know it it wasn't the, it wasn't the editors' fault. It was the lawyers, as as it usually is. Yeah, you
0: know. uh, um, yeah. So, and, and I mean I just wonder how you weigh the the impact of something like that um, when you're. Do you think journalism matters? Can it can it make a difference? What was, what was the outcome for your source on that story
1: he's still alive which um, you know I think that I, I think he might still be alive because, I mean it, it, a story like that can either get you killed or it can or it can protect you I mean and that's that's the tricky thing and clearly he had made the calculation that it would protect him um, because I, there's very little doubt in my mind that they would have killed him a long time ago um I mean, what impact does it have? You know, it's, I mean, here we are in, in 2017. We have an American president cozying up to uh, to this guy who I have absolutely no doubt in my mind. There's no doubt in my mind that Vladimir Putin um, ordered, the, ordered the apartment buyings and they were, that they were done for his, his benefit. I, I think we all go, I mean, well, i just speak for myself, I mean, I, I certainly, I've, I've, I think, I've had, I've worked on stories that w- where what has propelled me through the story is this idea that I'm saving somebody, or, or that, it's sometimes very directly, uh, but in, in other stories on where on a broader level, if you know, maybe what I can come back will shine a light on this thing that people don't know about, and it will incrementally push uh, towards uh, you know, some kind of change. Um, and most of the times, I've been disappointed. Most times, it hasn't—you it, know—it hasn't happened.
0: How about risk? How do you think about not, I mean, how do you think about risk? Risk. Uh, I remember Tina Rosenberg saying, "You know, keep an eye on uh, if your indicators of threat perception tend to slide when you're dealing with conflict, and, and more experience that you have." And so I was, I was kind of laughing at your Men's Journal piece that you used John Lee as a sort of barometer of that because right. by that standard, you know, it's the worst <laughs> right, right. Fucking world you're like talk. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to, are you know, there risks that you look back, that you took when you were younger, that you wouldn't take now?
1: Absolutely. 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 It, 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 yes. Uh, and it's a combination of, like I said, I, I, the world for journalists, for gringos, for, for Westerners, uh, certainly the Middle East things become exponentially more dangerous um i'm also the cliche of the guy who has a kid and all of a sudden like re-examines stuff um i I mean it really is a cliche in this business i mean marriage didn't change me but having a a kid did uh all kinds of stuff i wouldn't do now that i did um a couple examples maybe yeah i mean uh I mean, Chechnya. Chechnya. was this kind of watershed uh, experience for me. It was '96. It, 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 uh, it was the most horrifying experience ever in my life. I mean, I was there for three weeks, um, and every moment of those of those three weeks, uh, I felt that I could die the next in the next moment. Um, in fact I I don't know if it shows Um, see this little shock of white hair that happened in three weeks in Chechnya 20 years ago
0: that's the only streak of gray hair I had never had
1: down the middle yeah I've never had I've never gotten gray hair since I didn't have any before I came back three weeks in Chechnya I I hadn't bathed in three weeks because I was sleeping burned out Buildings and stuff. I got back to Moscow. I took my first shower in three
0: weeks and looked in the mirror, (laughs) and it was Well, I mean, what were the experiences, bullet point, if you cared it?
1: I mean, I was, you know, it it was an insane, insane idea. And I think if I had replicated this, if I had done this trip a hundred times, I I, I mean, and I'm not being hyperbolic. If I had done this trip a hundred times, I think I would have died 99 times. And somehow I got lucky the first time I did it, nothing happened. Um, I was going to look for this relief worker who had been in, I don't know, 35 war zones. The man not saved the world. Um, and he, you know, he'd been in 50 war zones. And, and he was in Chechnya for like four days and came out after his first time. And called Chechen to the, the scariest place he'd ever been. Two months later, he goes back. His first day back, he disappears. So I come in three months later to try to find out what happened to him. And I'm going into the same area where he disappeared. And the Chechens are crazy. The Russians are crazy. And three times, we—we, we, we, me and the photographer I was with and our fixer, were almost put against the wall. We yeah, actually twice by the Russians, once by the Chechens. And I'm I'm convinced to this day the only way we got out alive was because my photographer was black. It's like as crazy as as crazy, crazy as these motherfuckers were on both sides. It's like so the Chechens thought I was Russian because I kind of look Russian. It's like well, oh these black Russians, and so the Russians thought I was CIA. It's like are is it say even CIA even stupid enough to send a black guy to <laughs> to Russia. And I'm convinced that's the only reason we survived. In fact, his name is Stanley Green, who's the photographer I was with. He went back afterwards, and, and he confirmed, he he went at a time when the Chechen was kind of quiet, and he confirmed that, that twice with the Chechens we had been sent to places where we were to be executed. And at the last minute, they just decided not to kill us. So uh, it was just horrifying. It was horrifying from beginning to end. Um... So that's you know that's something with you know, it, 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 the hindsight of, of of what happened there. Um, it gets hindsight. I mean, the, you know, the problem with the war zones is, you know, not, you don't go. For, you do It's not like you walk through a door and like here you're like, you know, here everything is like hunky dory and you walk through and and, and there's fucking safe. It's like it's a whole gradual process. So and. And this is how people get killed in this stuff, is that, you know, it's this gradual process. So, you know, okay, you're, you're at home in Geneva, and then now you're in Aleppo, and you're in a safe neighborhood of Aleppo, but you've already, you know, it's, it's dramatic, it, whether you're an NGO or a journalist, it's already dramatically dangerous. So, going to that next neighborhood that's more dangerous... It just seems another small step, you know what I mean? But it's a huge fucking step from from when you're in Geneva. But you're already here. You're you're here just standing still. So you know how much worse there. And then oh yeah, and then it, it, you know then you're you up, and then then you get popped, and people go, what the fuck was he thinking? You know? Or um, you know, or Marie Colvin in Aleppo. You know, it's like what was she thinking? Well, um. So yeah, so so I think that you know that's that's the thing that's that's hard to figure out is is that you you just start down this path and, and each step is a little you're in a little deeper, a little deeper. that um, perception just slides. Yeah, yeah, it just slides. So, um, but I, you know, again, it, 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 now I mean, I'm I'm actually very thankful that I have a, a, a kid because I just feel she's brought clarity to. To my life and into what I'll do and what I won't do that I didn't have before um, and I'm kind of out of the and I think I think maybe men are especially you know, kind of uh, get suckered by this stuff there's this kind of machismo thing that can happen almost invariably the worst situations I've gotten into and sometimes I've been the architect of it sometimes I've been the the, the, the tagger on uh, it's been being with a group of guys and go hey, what about going up here? You know, no one's gotten up there. You know, it's like, and you don't want to be the pussy. Well, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Um, and you know, I think this happened. You know, and, and it's, it's 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 fucking my easier. It's just like it's like this bullshit stuff. Um, and I, all of a sudden, I, with having a
0: child now, I feel liberated from that. You know? Yeah. Does that mean that you think about almost in a? binary way about decisions and you think about your kid at that time? I mean, when you're, when you're calculating that risk of each... No, no. I mean, no, it's a slight, you know, it's a sliding thing. You know, for
1: instance, you know, with the, with the New York Times magazine thing, I mean, you know, I was d- deeply into this project and I realized, you know, I had, okay, I, I have to say, in my, in my heart of hearts, in the back of my mind, you know, when, when the security office of the New York Times said, no, there's no way you're going into the rebel side of Syria. Part of me was like, "Oh, fucking thank God, thank you for, thank you for saying that." <laughs> um, but I knew I had to go into Libya, um, and I—I um, I mean, I just had to for for the story. Okay, I, I could cheat Syria. I could I could get a Syrian refugee coming out. Okay, but I can't I can't do two refugees coming. You know, I can't do I can't cheat Libya and. and um, but uh, but yeah, so I mean, so that was you know I I, I had to do it and um, it's, it's you know it's funny it's it's just different it's just it's because I I you know I look at my kid and and it's just, a, do, you, do you have kids it's just this thing of like you've it, it's it's a very hard thing to explain and I never would have thought about it before I had a kid you almost feel like it's—it's it's, you have this kind of moral responsibility it's almost a moral thing that you you have to stay alive you, have, you, have, you can't do stupid shit you know it's not a bravery thing or, or anything you, you can't do stupid shit you have to stay alive for as long as possible for this other person it's not it's not your partner I mean they're going to they're do fine you know uh, but it's that little face you know that, that is counting on you and, and if you if if something happens to you what's going to happen to them
0: uh, so that, for me, that was a big deal. Do you, I'm curious about your wife. I mean, you, you mentioned this Men's Journal piece, you know, delaying a lot of these sort of decisions, you get married in the early 40s or later, you know. Uh, what kind of partnership do you guys have? How have you figured that out?
1: Yeah, she's a documentary filmmaker, uh, and, and she, she is, she is pretty, she's done some pretty crazy shit on her own. Um, I mean, she did some stuff last year that that kind of freaked me out. Um, she would never she would never tell me not to do something. I really hadn't done anything dangerous since our daughter was born um, uh, until the, you know until the, like the, the, this, the New York Times project and 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 really the only thing that was somewhat dangerous was Libya I, when I was in northern Iraq. I mean, it was with the Kurds and stuff. I, you know. I, I wasn't in danger um I think when you do this kind of work you kind of just have to let the you know you kind of have to trust the other person knows how to gauge the risks knows how to gauge the dangers and you just kind of let them do it you know um I don't know what you can really do to around it uh I mean, hopefully, hopefully. I mean, if I, if I if I was with somebody and I, I saw them doing something really stupid, I mean, you know, if I know, if, if, you know, if if my partner wanted to go to Syria, you know, and sneak in, you know, I I, I would really fight against it. If my I mean, you know, it's it's funny. You go back to going back to like like with John Lee. You know, we, I don't know how to say I, I, I don't want to say this in any kind of like you know kind of uh, uh, much he's more way but I've uh, kind of for the last certainly 15 years I've always been waiting for the phone call that John Lee was killed or, or worse kidnapped or taken hostage um and I suspect, to a degree, he's he's expected that about me. Um, but what? But what? What I mean, what? I'm going to tell John, oh, don't go back to Iraq. Don't do, don't do this. Don't do that. Is he really going to say that to me? Uh, it's it, you know, you're just kind of it, it, it's what. And again, that's why I'm saying I don't want it to sound like oh, you know, it's it's. it's, it's it's like what you have to do, and, and, and it's it's like, it's like hopefully that person has has uh, gauged the, the the risks involved and and the risks, the story is worth worth the risks. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not not like they're going to listen to you anyway, you know. <laughs>
0: Do you think if John Lee got killed on assignment, he'd regret the life, the career that he's had, or are you in that case? Do you think that the sum of the risks and the sum of the rewards are worth it?
1: I really don't want it. I mean, now, I don't want to die in a story. Um, I'm sure he doesn't. I, I'm not like we ever want to die in a story. Um, I don't know. I mean, I can remember. I can remember uh, John saying behind in Baghdad, you know, when the when the Bush administration ordered all the journalists out in in, in 03 and said, you know, we're not making any dispensations for for journalists. There's no safe zone. And, and watching on CNN, you know, the, the downtown Baghdad go up in fucking flames, um, and dealing with his kids who at that time were little, uh, and they were they were.
0: Terrified of, that
1: their father was going to die in Baghdad. Um, I
0: felt.
1: I feel I could kind of follow John's example, and and I didn't do things that he did as a result. Does that make sense? Uh, I I. In, you know, because watching his example if I'd had if I had a, if I had a kid uh, in 2003 I would not have taken him back then. Uh, but I but you know I'm following his example um, because I think I, I think it, it changes that I mean my experience when I went to Libya last year I, and it was a very quick trip and now I was only there for four four days um, and, you know, I told my daughter I, I was going... And I said, oh, you know, I'm going to a safe place and everything, and, I'm, you know, I'm coming out. And I tried to call, but it was very hard to call. I tried to make a point of calling every day I was there. But meanwhile, I, unbeknownst to me, my daughter had, had, you know, Wikipedia and what was happening in Libya, and she knew that I was in an area where ISIS was operating. And she was fucking terrified the whole time I was there. And I didn't know, I didn't know this until I got home, but she was... She freaked out every night. I was I was in Libya, and so when I got out, and when I and especially when I came back to the states, and my wife told me that, I said, like, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not, it's just not worth it. Not worth it for me, and, and especially not worth it for her. But, and what that's going to do to her, you know, how is she, at that age, she has to, you know, and again, this kind of ties into what I saw happening with my brother's kids. It's like kids at a very young age, seven, eight, nine years old, making this calculation in their mind of like, okay, what what do I do if my father is killed? You know? And that becomes that that's kind of a permanent thing, you know, the 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 the, the little stratagems they come up with in their mind. And I, so I just like, you know, fuck this, I'm not doing it. so that's why you know going back to what I was saying before, I'm kind of grateful for my daughter in that way. And that it's it's made it's really kind of it's brought a clarity to my life that wasn't there before, because I because I could always get suckered into like oh hey no other journalists will go there Do you want to go it's like oh, maybe and it, you know and the, and the whole kind of graduating danger thing, um, and the machismo thing and, and all that stuff yeah no, I mean I'm absolutely a sucker to that stuff but but now I'm like looking at my you know my daughter. Um, so, yeah.
0: I'm going to do that to her maybe that answers my last question but you know how do you um, how do you know it's time to hang it up I mean you've been doing this a long time how long do you want to keep going for I certainly feel
1: for the Middle East I feel a kind of a psychic exhaustion and, and part of that exhaustion it stems from part of it is it, well it, the psychic exhaustion comes from my feeling that that nothing's going to get better anytime soon. So it's like, what am I doing? Am I do do I really want to go and like, oh, hey, you know, Egypt is fucked up. Here, here's here's a here's a latest installment and in how it's fucked up, or, or Iraq or or, or wherever. Uh, that just doesn't have much appeal to me anymore. Um, So I so I, I kind of feel like I'm done by and large with the Middle East. Uh, I, I I just I, I'm exhausted by it and and pessimistic about it. So what am I doing, but to go back? Um, but but more directly to your thing, I, I do feel there's. There, I mean I think most people who do this, they're they're very superstitious, and I feel I've I've. Uh, I feel like I've used up quite a few of my lives if I have nine lives I've used up about six (laughs) Um, I think I'd like to I'd like to think I'd like to do something something quite different now
0: Um,
1: I think I've, think I've, I've I think I'm I think I'm done with war, and it's not just it's not just a safety danger thing. It's it's kind of a moral exhaustion thing, you know. I I mean I I mean I am at a point now where I mean I've seen you know i I've, I've seen so many horrific things. I've I've interviewed so many people who've told me horrific things. And in very with very few exceptions, with very few cases, um I can just kind of get up and walk away from it. And what someone's told me, what's what I've seen, uh has very little effect on me. And I think that that is not healthier, good. Take that out of your soul a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah, I think that, that, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, I mean, it's funny because there's this, on the whole thing with the New York Times, uh, magazine piece. And it was a year and a half of, of work and um, there was only one moment in that year and a half where it was with this little girl this little Yazidi you know, girl who had been um, captured by ISIS and uh, and her family had ransomed her out after eight months being held. And and there, there's something about the, the particulars of her experience that it, it was the most one of the most kind of crushing moments I've ever had as a journalist, probably because she was so, cl- she was so close in the age of my own daughter. Um, but it's funny, in all, the t- in all the talks I've been done, I, I don't know, 20, 25 talks I've, I've done in the last six months about that piece, I've always been kind of made a point of talking about this little girl, and I always choked up in talking about her. And I think I almost do it to kind of show that there's something that can still affect me. Because everything else, I mean, I know, I mean, you know, I've, I mean, you know, I've seen bodies you know, vaporize in front of me. I've, I've, I've had people talk about their whole families being wiped out. I've had people talk about wiping out whole families and everything. And this is water off a duck's back. But to, to, I feel like the story of this little girl uh, and the effect it has on me. At least it, it, it kind of it it uh, it's, it's, it reminds me that that I can be affected still. So. Does that
0: make sense? It affirms that there's something. Yeah,
1: that yeah, connect. yeah. That because I, I I mean there there have been times uh, in, in where I've been a, a bit alarmed at just how at 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 the shit I can. Experience the shit I can see, the shit that people can tell me, and I'm just like, you know, okay, you know, turn off the tape recorder, and go on, you know, go back, you know, go back to that hotel, watch like, CNN, never affects me. It, it, it's, it's, uh, or, or worse, it's like, oh, that was great shit. I, I know exactly what that, I know what that scene's going to be like.
0: Mercenary instinct,
1: yeah. Um, so yeah, to. But you know, I mean, the, you know, the last thing I'll say on this is, is like, I, I what, what I've always been, very, not always, but certainly, you know, as an adult journalist, what, I, what I've been kind of aware of this stuff is like, the need to kind of bifurcate your life between, you know, what's happens there, and then to somehow separate that from your life where you come back here and. You know, you're with your friends. They talk about what movie they saw, or, or, or you know, or whatever. And 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 you know, because how do you ma- you can't marry those two worlds, and and yet, so from a mental health standpoint, you almost have to you have to keep it separate. But again, from a mental health health standpoint, it's like, <laughs> is that really healthy? You know, to, to have these two parallel worlds. Um,
0: I'm just hoping if you have a few more lives left. Then. Yeah, a yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I
1: think I do. Yeah.
0: Okay. No. Well, that's it. Scott had some more really fascinating stuff to say that we didn't have room for in this cut, but we're going to post it online in our show notes, so definitely uh, check that out. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week for podcast number two. Detours is produced by Jason Motlog with sound engineer Casey Lee Hurt and assistant producer Gray Lynn Brashear.